0: Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old fashioned, active allocators of capital. Who is leading the charge? Who is disrupting? Who is being disrupted? How does the frenetic political and economic backdrop feed into the investment process? And really understand why we invest in the first place. In this episode, we're going back to investment. So my guest this week is Andy Seaman. Andy is the manager of the Stratton Street Renminbi Bond Fund. We start by discussing why he started the fund in 2007. He defines the investment opportunity, both back then and now, and really what he's trying to achieve. We also talked about where he's finding his best ideas, how China is playing the long game, and what the rising influence of China means to both the currency and the broader Asian investment landscape. Andy was a great guest. He's got an encyclopedic brain and... And I really enjoyed the conversation. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Well, Andy Seaman, welcome to the podcast. Andy, let's start by defining the opportunity. Why did you set up the fund in 2007?
1: Well, back in 2007, the Rimminbi was the biggest exposure we had in our hedge fund. We felt it was the world's most undervalued currency based on something called net foreign assets that we've been looking at. But it's very difficult for investors to get exposure to the RemNimbi. You had to use non-deliverable forwards. So what we wanted to do was set up a fund which allowed people to get exposure to that. And we decided to set up a fund that could invest in Asian investment-grade bonds hedged into REM because it was the only way you could do it at the time.
0: Can you describe what the landscape uh, was like back then in 2007 and how perhaps it's changed to the investment landscape now? Well, back then,
1: the Chinese domestic bond market wasn't open to international investors. The dim sum market, which was launched in 2010, didn't exist either. And you could only buy the currency through non-deliverable forwards because CNH, as it's known, didn't exist either. So it was quite a challenge to create a Remnimbi bond fund. And there weren't many Chinese dollar issues either. So we looked at a sterling bond fund and realized that a sterling bond fund would not just be a UK investment. It would include European or emerging market exposures. So we decided that the definition of a Remnimbi bond fund could include Asian investment-grade bonds hedged into Remnimbi, as opposed to a Chinese bond fund, which wouldn't have been doable given there wasn't enough Chinese assets at the time, but a Chinese bond fund would be purely invested in Chinese assets.
0: Yeah, I see. And you can see on the breakdown of your current assets that it's only 15% is in China at the moment. Andy, taking a step back, can we talk about the process and how you apply that process to your investment universe? So we use the same
1: process across all of our funds from our global through to the Renminbi Bond Fund. The only difference is that the Renminbi Bond Fund has exposure to Asia, whereas the others are global. But the starting point of our process is to figure out which countries are wealthy. And we use something called net foreign assets there. Net foreign assets, by definition, is the cumulative current account of a country. So countries like China, which have run large current account surpluses over many years, build up overseas assets, and that tends to drive currency higher, but it's also a measure of the wealth of a nation. And we use it in our bond process primarily for that. So countries with very high net foreign assets, above 100% of GDP, we give a seven-star rating to, and at the other end of the spectrum, the indebted countries have liabilities above 100%. We give them a one-star, and there's obviously a range in between. And we only lend to those that are three star or above. So countries that have low levels of indebtedness and they also have to be investment grade. So that's the starting point. Figure out which countries are wealthy and which countries are not. We much prefer to lend to countries that can afford to pay us back as opposed to those that can't, which seems obvious. But unfortunately, that's not how a lot of people allocate their fixed income these days.
0: Looking at your sort of top countries that you have exposure to, They are oil, or they tend to be sort of oil-related and oil-dependent states. How do you measure that risk factor? That's a very good question. I mean, to start with,
1: I should point out that there are not many AA countries, or AAA for that matter, around the world, and a lot of them happen to be oil producers, so it's that way around. So those countries, in theory, have risk to oil prices, But in practice, because they built up large amounts of overseas assets over many, many years, they are less sensitive to movements in oil prices than you might think. So the key starting position is, is a country wealthy? Does it have assets which are well in 100% of GDP in terms of their net assets? And if they were to lose some of their income through lower oil prices, for example, are they still able to sustain that wealth and continue to operate as before? as opposed to a heavily indebted nation who where a loss of income would be fatal for it because it wouldn't have enough money to finance its debts alone. Obviously, wealthy countries have net assets and have a net income from that as
0: well. Your view on the remnant B, I mean, how has that changed since you launched the fund? I mean, clearly, your view must have been undervalued. Is that the same? And what will catalyse the remnant B going forward? So, yes, back in 2007,
1: the currency was very undervalued and has been appreciating over time. But in the last few years, say five years, the renminbi has been on a bit of a declining trend. So at the moment, it offers a very attractive proposition. Firstly, China's the only G20 country with positive growth in 2020. When you hedge from other currencies where interest rates are zero, into Chinese currency, where interest rates are 25 to 3.5%, depending on the maturity, you get paid an extra level of interest to assume that risk. So that makes it attractive. Also, China's just a major trade deal with its Asian trading partners. That should be supportive of growth in the region. And also, they've successfully dealt with the pandemic or in a much better way than we have in the West. And so from just that position alone, China is in a very, very strong position, but it also has a vested interest in seeing the currency appreciate gradually over time, because if you do that, the country can consume from abroad at lower cost, obviously, Mm -hmm. it can gradually reform its economy as long as that currency appreciation is steady. So there's lots of reasons why the renminbi is a very positive story at the moment. All things have aligned at one time when it comes to the renminbi.
0: What do you think the playbook is? I mean, are they looking at the Japanese experience in the 90s and to emulate that, perhaps? I
1: think the similarities between Japan and China are, quite frankly, that the two countries started off as emerging countries and gradually over time matured. So growth rates in Japan in the 60s were roughly sort of 10, 11 percent or so. And over time, the growth rate of the economy as it matured declined. China is going through a very similar transition. But over the 50-plus years since Japan was an emerging country, the yen has appreciated. The Chinese currency is likely to follow a very similar path, partly because of its current account surplus, but partly because it's maturing in that way. So the Chinese will be aware that is what happened to Japan. They're also aware that the currency was hugely volatile, and that acted as a dampener on growth, because highly volatile currency makes it very difficult for their companies to invest. So the lessons that the Chinese have learnt from that is that they need to keep the currency more stable. So rather than managing the currency against the dollar, they manage their currency against a basket of currencies, which keeps the currency much more
0: stable. How do you think the much publicised, probably five years ago, less publicised now, perhaps the Belt and Road Initiative plays into that? That's a, a very good
1: question as well. So The way to think about this is there's multiple stages. So first of all, China's capital markets have to be opened up to foreigners. Once that happens, and at the moment, the Chinese are very keen on getting foreign investment into China, that will free up capital for more productive uses. One of those is AI and automation and technological investments generally But equally, you've got this Belt and Road Initiative, which will generate substantial gains for all of the countries along that pathway, but obviously will be way more efficient than the current process of trade through those countries. And it'll span all the way from China, all the way to the UK at the other end. So they're all kind of linked, freeing up domestic capital to do things more productive abroad. And that's over and above any sort of political benefits that might have. This is really an economic benefit that they're focused on.
0: And we just staying on that freeing up domestic capital. What levers can they pull or perhaps, you know, what incentives can they put in place to attract foreign capital?
1: Well, despite raying US-China relations, foreigners, including US investors, are very keen on the Remnimbi. So one of the key considerations for investors is the currency going up or down. So clearly, if the PBOC at this stage were highlighting that the currency strength was too rapid or they didn't want to see any further appreciation, that would put investors off. But that clearly isn't the case at the moment. The currency is actually undervalued on trade-weighted measures. So one of the key starting points is to convince people that the RMB is a strong currency, stronger than the dollar, or an alternative to the dollar for some people. And if people are convinced that it can be a store of value, then, of course, you're going to want to have holdings in it. So it becomes a bit circular. If people don't consider it to be a store of value, in many ways, a lot of people didn't really think of the yen as a store of value. It's very difficult for them to make investments in the yen. Then it won't grow as an international currency. Well, the Chinese have an eye on making the renminbi a true reserve currency alternative to the dollar at some point in the future.
0: Mm -hmm. What are the steps to doing that? And I suppose I'm leaning on, there was an announcement, I think, three months ago, saying that we will not pursue unorthodox monetary policy in contrast to the West. Is this a sort of starting point? Absolutely. We're open for business, come and invest. The Chinese are very
1: smart and they understand that people have to have confidence in any currency, be it the Chinese renminbi or the dollar before they will consider it to be a reserve currency. And one of the problems that we have faced in the West, whether it's for legitimate reasons because of the pandemic, whether it's for less obvious reasons where growth has been too weak and therefore we've cut interest rates to zero in order to try and stimulate growth that arguably isn't really there, all of those things, though, debase those currencies. By making a statement like that, the Chinese would not look to pursue those unorthodox policies That should give confidence to investors that they won't do that. Why would they want to do that? And that should encourage people to switch at the margin from currencies that they currently feel comfortable with to currencies that they currently most people
0: don't have in their portfolios at all. Mm -hmm. And let's go back to policy leaders. What else can the Chinese do to promote inward investment in China? So
1: one of the key things that China gets criticized for is that its growth rate is slower than it once was. But that's kind of ridiculous really because the growth rate in China is way higher than any other country and as I just said earlier in 2020 although the absolute growth rate in China was a small positive it's massively stronger than anywhere else in the world. So just having a faster growth rate than the rest of the world is an attractive feature in itself the fact that it used to be 10 plus in the past is kind of irrelevant what you really care about is the relative growth rate today and for many 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 years China is going to have a higher growth rate than other parts of the world and clearly that's an important consideration when you're looking at equity markets and such like you've got to consider how fast the underlying economy can grow at potential and China's got one of the higher ones of the bigger economies around the globe
0: I see. And just going back to your portfolio, clearly, as we discussed, there's a high exposure to sort of energy producing countries now. Five years time, looking further down the lens, where would you see that sort of tilt? Where do you expect your portfolio to be positioned? Well, part of the reason that we have high exposure
1: to countries in the Middle East is because they haven't until recently formed a large part of the major bond indices. So if you go back prior to 2019, Those countries in the Middle East didn't figure in anyone who followed an index when they're managing their fixed income portfolios. That changed in 2019. So the Middle Eastern countries generally have gone from being an off benchmark bet to something, a constituent of those indices. And therefore, over time, particularly as people realize that these are AA countries in many cases, on very high yields compared to yields available in Europe, for example, where even Spanish yields are extraordinarily low these days, zero at 10 years effectively, why wouldn't those yields come down over time? So if that occurs, our relative value model will shift us towards better value elsewhere. So it's all a relative value play, really, which is why we've got the high exposure today.
0: Why do you think that there is that sort of misallocate? Perhaps it's a misallocation of capital, but why do you think that is? I think um, that's relative
1: the liquidity in Europe. I think that's relatively easy to understand when you think about how bond indices are constructed. Mm. So if you take the Barclays Global Ag for example, Spain represents 2.6 percent of that index, and as I just said, ten years are zero to negative at the moment. Now, if overnight, just theoretically, Spain were to double its debt, the weight in the index would go up, and you would think. Logically that people would want to own less of an indebted nation because it's now got twice as much debt as it had previously. But the way the bond industry is constructed is now a 5% weighting of the overall index. And now people want to buy even more. Well, that's self-defeating. So it seems daft to us that people allocate their money in that way, that that is what they do. Conversely, countries like Qatar and other Middle Eastern countries, because they're wealthy, they form a small part of the index. But surely you should be lending to the smaller parts of the index that people can easily identify as being able to pay you back rather than the heavily indebted countries of Europe that pay you nothing and whose debt levels have always been high. In the case of Spain, you know, approximately 100% of GDP is what they owe to foreigners, which is obviously substantial for which you're not getting compensated.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting distinction compared to the the equity markets. And as we go into... 2021, we maybe look forward to a vaccine, a reconciliation between, or certainly a departure from the sort of aggressive foreign policy that we've seen coming out of the United States from the Trump administration. How does that, how will that feed into A, your investment process and B, how you expect the bond fund to perform, the renminbi bond fund? I think
1: it will take a long time for Chinese-US relations to fully thaw. So I think the story really is about whether China can convince other countries that they want to trade with it. Well, it is a major trading nation. Most countries don't have a choice other than to trade with China, regardless of what you think about the underlying politics, to an important player in the global financial system to ignore. So China is going to be a bigger part of people's portfolios going forward. Yeah, I don't think it's going to affect the performance of our fund simply because we are already 100% exposed to the Asian countries that are likely to benefit from the trade deal done with China. And they're not really suffering in any negative way from the negative fallout from Chinese-U.S. tensions. That would be different, of course, if you were a U.S. exporter where China was a very key market for you. We're not really in that position. Any easing of those tensions would clearly be positive for sentiment. So it would be probably be positive at the margin for credit, but it would probably affect our global bond funds just as much as it would our uh, renminbi bond fund. So it's kind of neutral, I would say, for
0: this fund in particular. Neutral to positive. Do you, do you think, just staying on the China's ability to do trade deals in the region, does it change the sort of uh, political mathematics if the US re-enter Uh, TPP or uh, CPTPP as it is now?
1: It might do at the margin, but they will be followers rather than leaders. I think the biggest mistake that the US has made is to withdraw from these type of agreements where it can have an influence from the inside. Mm -hmm. Maybe it assumes that other countries wouldn't go ahead without it, but that's clearly not the case with the latest Asian trade deal. So, yes, you can come back into these things afterwards, but your ability to influence things as a late entrant, effectively, is going to be much more diminished than it once was. So it's mm-hmm. been quite hard for them to regain the ground that they might have otherwise held on to.
0: Mm-hmm. And just returning to this, the Belt and Road Initiative, what's your view? Why do you think it's been, or perhaps has it been, de-emphasised of late? And, and what's the reason if it has? it's been going on in the background for
1: many many years i think the biggest problem with it is it is politically unpopular amongst those who see this as a mechanism for china to get more influence over the countries through which the belt and road initiative actually passes unfortunately that's just the reality of having you know a major superpower with a lot of money who is actually working with countries to help them grow. It's very hard to fight against that. They may not like it, but the reality is that China is going to be an increasingly important player in the world sphere. And whether you like it or not, it's probably better to accept that that's the reality and work with them rather than against them. The US have chosen for their own reasons to try and work against them. I'm not sure that's necessarily in their longer term interest. Mm
0: -hmm. a final question. What advice would you give to, um, we have a lot of younger listeners to this podcast, what advice would you give to them, the graduates, the sort of analysts and associates who are trying to get in to become analysts or bond fund managers, and particularly those looking at China? What advice would you give to them and what do you look for when you're looking for candidates? I think the first and
1: the most important thing to do is to not reject completely the history books, but to look forward to where the world is going to be in 2030 50 years time, not where it has been in the past. It's very easy to look at major economies like the US and the UK, for example, and assume they will always be relatively important. Well, if you actually look at the demographic shifts going around in the world, there's a very big shift towards, and the wealth of these nations as well, to Asia and Africa in terms of where populations are, and the Middle East, where populations are growing more strongly. So if you project forward what the world will look like in 20 or 30 years' time, and then think about of those areas that are left, where would you like to position yourself? An obvious conclusion is going to be that China is going to be more important than it is today. So that would be a very good place to start. But if not, then you'd have to think about other places like Africa, which the Chinese have invested heavily into, because they are going to be very large economies at some point in the future. So I would look forward to how the world is going to
0: look and not look backwards to where it's been. Andy Seaman, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to the Wineverse podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, Andy Seaman. If you've enjoyed the episode, then like it or subscribe to it and tell your friends. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.